about godly marriages, maybe you think back to the early days when you went to summer camp or you were at recess at school. Does anybody remember the three-legged race? Who remembers a three-legged race? What a fun event. We should do that more. In fact, next Thrive Fellowship, nothing but three-legged races, okay? Me and my wife would do horrible because I have the legs of a giraffe and she does not. We won't describe those. Um, so yeah, they're nice. This is going to get weird. Never mind. I just, we would just not do well. Um, but to be a good three-legged race team, you need some team chemistry and some unity. If not, things like this will happen. Let's see if you can relate. Joanna's dragging Madeline. She's in it to win it, folks. Oh. All right, we can cut it there. Thank you. You got to cross the line. Yeah, you got to cross the line. Yeah. You see that when unity is needed, when you're not in sync with the other person, the results can be very dis disastrous. Now, unfortunately, sometimes marriage might feel like that, okay? We've got one person on track, ready to go, doing what they're going to do, and the other person's just kind of sitting there, and we feel like we're grabbing them and dragging them along, but that's not the way God designed marriage to be. He designed two people to work together in such harmony and unity that their actions together display God's love for the world, and we talked about the importance of that last time. Tonight, we're going to figure out a couple of ways we can do that. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to look at the last three verses, Ephesians chapter 5. I hope this has been a beneficial time for you looking at the Word of God and having it described for us what a godly marriage will be and what it will look like and what you should be doing as you participate in it. Our marriages should not look like the three-legged race team we saw there. They should be two people joined together in focus, in rhythm, ready to work for the honor and glory of God. And this passage right here helps us in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 through 33. Listen to what Paul says. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, there is a lot here, and we've covered a lot of this so far in these verses. But what is so clear, especially from verse 31 itself, the quotation from Genesis 2.24, is that God has designed marriage to function in such a way that two people, in essence, are one. So let us get it down, number, way, number one, this way on our outline. Let's work together to maintain unity. Let's work together to maintain unity. God wants us to be unified in our marriages. And if we're not unified in our marriages, then unfortunately we're going to be a lot like that three-legged race team, one person dragging the other person, and it just ends in disaster. We want to make sure that we are aiming for the unity that God has designed marriage to be, where two people come together and they are functioning as one 
person, which is so beautiful and profound as the text will tell us. Paul quotes from Genesis 2, 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And what I love about this and what I love about every author of Scripture is that no matter the cultural context, we have Paul sticking to the authority of the Word of God when he's talking about marriage. If you know anything about Ephesus, Ephesus itself was one of the richest regions in all of the Roman Empire. In fact, I think only surpassed by Rome and uh, Alexandria as being bigger and richer. It was the third most influential city there. And not only was it very influential, very affluent, very rich, but it was also uh, polytheistic. Many different people worshipped many different things in many different ways. And it was a culture that was not particularly welcoming to those cultures that said, hey, the Bible's true and what the Bible wants you to do is good. In fact, turn with me to Acts chapter 19 just to give you a little snapshot of what the Apostle Paul was facing when he's ministering in the culture of Ephesus. Acts chapter 19 comes after the beatdown of the sons of Sceva, and that's an interesting story if you're ever wanting to entertain the kids. But in chapter 19, verse 21 uh, through, uh, let's see, 28, we're going to find out the, the culture there that Paul is ministering there. Acts 19 21. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having uh, sent into Macedonia two of his uh, helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, which is Christianity. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods." So we have at that point in time the climate against someone who would say, hey, those gods that you're worshiping aren't the true God. They need to start worshiping the real God. And any God that is made is not a God at all. And so verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged. They heard what Paul was saying. And they were crying out, great is Artemis of Ephesus. Now, Artemis was the goddess of fertility. She was one worship. She was actually called Queen of Heaven, Lord, Savior, many titles that are applied to Christ. This is the culture that Paul finds himself in. But Paul has no problem telling the church, hey, it really doesn't matter the culture you find yourself in. I'm going to tell you what the Bible says marriage should be. And he quotes to Genesis 2.24, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So it doesn't matter how against the culture is against our religion. It just really matters what the Bible says because it's our ultimate authority. We go back to that and say, forget what you say, and it doesn't matter the disturbance you bring against us. We're going to preach the truth, and we're going to live according to it. And the truth is that we need to be unified like this. Just write down Matthew 19, verses 5 and 6. Matthew 19, 5 and 6. Just for a reference... To build the case that not only Paul believed this, but Jesus himself, like we looked at over the summer, was always appealing to the Bible to be the authority on what marriage should be. And there, in Matthew 19, 5 and 6, Jesus himself quotes from Genesis 2, 24. 
This is the standard. This is what we're aiming for, and we're aiming for this unity. We always want to make sure that we are hitting that. So if we're, if we're doing this, what can we do in order to make sure that we maintain our unity? Is my, is my wife here? Did she make it here? She was dropping the kids off. Sweetie, will you come up here for an illustration? Everybody loves it when you come up on stage for an illustration. Come on up here. We did not rehearse this because I forgot to. So we'll see how this one goes, folks. Uh, sweetie, get on up here, okay? No three-legged race this time, but I'm telling you, we will do that. Come on up here, and you're going to stand right over here. So this is my wife, and we got married, okay? And uh, we got married back in Michigan, and uh, it was uh, one of the best days of my life, probably second only to salvation. Uh, and what we did on our wedding day is we stood next to each other across this way and faced me, and we stood this way. When you stand before God, you understand that when you're making a commitment, when you're making a covenant with somebody, in marriage, what you're promising to do is this. You're promising to look at another person and hold your hands open like this. So hold your hands open like that. You're, you're promising to stand before God for the rest of your life and be ready to give, okay? You're promising to do that. Now here's what tends to happen in marriages. So this is, this is what you promise. You say, God, no matter what, I'm gonna promise to stand like this and love my wife no matter what, and we're gonna be unified in that. But then things start to happen. She starts to make fun of my sweater, say it looks like Mr. Rogers, and I start to get, hey, don't laugh so fast at that. <laughs> you were laughing way too quick. That's from my son earlier. She starts to make fun of me. So I put my hands down, and now I'm no longer really excited to give. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna be a participant, but I'm not ready to give as much because she hurt my feelings. And then all of a sudden she makes jokes about my preaching, and now my hands go from here to here, and now I'm turning like this. Then she says some other things. Finally, I get to the point where really I'm standing like this and she is standing right there. What tends to happen then is that person, sweetie, cross your arms, gets upset, turns backwards. <laughs> and this is ultimately the state that you end up in when you're not unified in your marriage. Now take a look at this picture. It looks funny, but think about how dishonoring this picture is to God. When you promised to stand like this, and then now you're standing like this in front of God's eyes. Now, does this not look like your kids when they're not getting what they want? It's not so funny anymore, is it? Because you parents know you get very angry when your kids do that. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here to tell you, if we are going to make a difference and remain unified, no matter what, we've got to promise to stand with our hands open and say, I'm going to give because that's going to help us be unified. Ladies and gentlemen, Andrea Elliott, thank you so much. So if you are in a position right now where you are like that, your hands are crossed and you're not willing to turn around and look to the other person, you've got to get over yourself and say, you know what I promised on that day was to work hard towards unity with this person. And I am going to stay there, hands open, ready to give, not turning my back and crossing my arms. How do we make sure we stay like that? Well, two things that I think can help you, okay? Two things that can help you. One is to make sure that your household has a characteristic or a culture of thanksgiving, okay? Number one is if your household is a culture or characteristic of thanksgiving, that will allow you to always be ready to give. Because the opposite of thanksgiving would be ingratitude, and ingratitude is driven by selfishness. 
But if I'm always thankful, it's because I'm driven by giving to other people. So always have a culture of thanksgiving in your home. You can write down for me, and I'm going to read it for you. Colossians chapter 3, where we were last year, Colossians 3. And listen to something that I don't know we always pick up as we read these verses. Colossians 3, we're going to start in verse 15. Colossians 3, 3.15. Listen to this. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and notice this command, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Thanksgiving, be thankful. Thanksgiving three times right before what? The way the household is supposed to function. So we've talked about the roles of husband and wife over the last couple of weeks, and that's very vital that you understand that. But if I'm so mechanical in doing those roles, and I don't have a a culture of thanksgiving or not a household of thanksgiving, it's going to be kind of robotic and not really what God wanted it to be. The the father is going to go too far into his leadership role or not enough into it if there's not this idea of thanksgiving because thanksgiving promotes selflessness Ingratitude promotes selfishness. So he says that, and then he gives us what we've been studying, wives, verse 18, submit to your husband as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this is pleasing to the Lord. Then go down to chapter 4, verse 2. Notice what bookends this as well. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So this household recommendation for what God says is my standard for how your household is to function is bookend with the call for thanksgiving. If you don't have thanksgiving in your life, there is no way that you're going to not do this and do this. You've got to be a very, very thankful person. If not, you're going to be a very selfish, selfishly driven person, and that will always end very badly for you. I heard a story the other day. I don't know if it's true. One, because I'm not an Eskimo and I don't know any. But if anybody is an Eskimo out there and can confirm this is true, it makes a great sermon illustration. They say how an Eskimo catches a wolf is this. They take a knife and they put a little bit of blood on it and they let the blood freeze on the blade. Then they put a little bit more blood, let that freeze, and more and more and more until it's almost like a blood popsicle. Let that sit in your mind for a moment, just a blood popsicle. Just delicious, right? Once they've got it coated really well, they take that and they put it in the ground so the blade's sticking up. What the sense of smell in the wolf will do will attract it to the blood. And it will come and it will start to lick the frozen blood popsicle. Again, disgusting, I'm sorry. But it's going to lick it and it's going to taste the blood and it's going to be good. But it's going to lick and it's going to lick and it's going to taste blood until it gets down to the blade and it cuts its own tongue. When it cuts its own tongue, it continues to lick because it tastes blood, but it doesn't realize it's its own blood. And the more that it continues to lick, the more that it continues to kill the wolf. My friends, that is what ingratitude is in the life of a Christian. It's a popsicle you found that once you lick it, it's going to take you to an end that you don't like. You think it's satisfying you and you think it's really good, but ultimately you are choking the life out of yourself. 
you got to have this spirit of thanksgiving where you realize every good and perfect gift comes from God. Have you ever genuinely believed that when you talk to God? Every good and perfect gift comes from Him. Think about one good thing that you had this day. Just one good thing that you had this day. I just had a great cup of coffee before I came here. You know what? I better be thankful to God for that. Every good and perfect gift. When, it's my boy, Trenton, third birthday today. You should say happy birthday to him. I got to hug my three-year-old boy. That is a good and perfect gift from God. And when I realize with the spirit of thanksgiving, God, I don't deserve any of these things. And in fact, I deserve, you deserve my complete devotion devoid of all these blessings. It motivates me all the more to love and serve him. We need to have a culture of thanksgiving. Secondly, in a marriage, what is going to promote this unity is sex. Ladies and gentlemen, we need to make sure that sex is a priority in our marriage. Because if not, the unity between husband and wife is not going to be there like it should. I mean, theologically, that's part of the significance of saying one flesh. And if that doesn't happen, then we are in trouble. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians 7. I, I'm saying, I, I knew all the husbands were thinking it, but I got a man out there saying out loud. I like that. So you're welcome, husbands. Send me the thank you note later. Spare me the details. Seriously. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This has quickly turned into a junior high ministry in a second. Let's keep it above the belt, fellas. All right. 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5. Now concerning matters about which you wrote, and this is the Corinthians saying, well, you know what? With all you're saying about fleeing sexual immorality and letting me glorify God with my body, you know what? It's good that a man never has sexual relations with a woman. But Paul says, wait a second. Because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over her own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, and then come back together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. This is where ingratitude will come in and destroy a marriage. So ladies and gentlemen, let's use this great gift that God has given us to unify us and make sure we live in a household that is unified in a marriage wanting to glorify and honor God. Well, back to Ephesians. I think that's what it's telling us. We need to devote ourselves together, be committed together to making sure we work on glorifying God together. But the passage takes a different turn in the last verse. Verse 32 connects them, say this, is, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church, this, this oneness, this unity, but don't think in that oneness and unity that Christ and the church are indistinguishable at that point in time because they still have their own characteristics. Same way, verse 33, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. See, verse 31 is emphasizing our unity but verse 33 is emphasizing our individual responsibility. So number two, get it down this way. Live out your individual responsibilities no matter what. Live out your individual responsibilities no matter what. This verse is so helpful and so illuminating for everybody in the room. 
Because what I love about this is this goes back to what we talked about over the summer. Creation defined marriage. God created it, and he says this is its purpose. And you make a covenant to love the other person no matter what. And this details for you, husbands and wives, what you should be doing individually. I love how Paul emphasized that. Look at that. However, let each one of you husbands love his wife as he loves himself. That's taking it out of the one flesh to husbands. You have to do this no matter what. And then in the second half of the verse, the wives. And let the wife see, individual, that she respects her husband. Notice there is no conditions in these verses. It lacks the conditionality that most of our marriages seem to have. Oh, I will not respect him if he doesn't do that, or I will not love her if she doesn't do that, but there are no ifs in this verses, only commands. Which means no matter how you really feel about it, you've got to do what God is asking you to do. If you're saying, I'm in a covenant relationship with God, so this helps us, no matter what's going on in your marriage, to say, man, I've got to do what God is telling me to do. It's really going to help you navigate some difficult times. If you think about it this way, you think about it on a bike, and I'm sure it's not the, the most perfect analogy, but you think about it on a bike. A bike has two wheels, and the two wheels are working together for one purpose. If one of the tires is flat, the bike can still move, but it's very difficult, Right? Very difficult when both of the tires don't move, almost impossible. But if one is inflated and the other one's busted, if one of the tires is working, you can still go and you can still move. It's kind of like that in a marriage. You look at your spouse and let's say they're committing sin and they're the flat tire. If you don't self-destruct and flatten yourself, you can still add to the grace of the marriage by saying, I'm going to help it move in the right direction by doing what God wants me to do. If you get selfish too and you both flatten your tires, the, the bike's not going anywhere. But if you think, hey, you know what? There's a flat tire. It'll get repaired. It'll get worked on. But until then, I'm going to continue to do what God wants me to do. The bike's at least going in the right direction. Let's make sure that that's the way we're at least viewing our marriage. I signed up to do my part based on no condition of the other person. And when I agree to do that, that's when I really begin to give the other person what God has given me, unconditional love. Now, this is very hard when you talk about loving someone who you don't think deserves it or respecting someone who you don't think deserves it. But because marriage is designed by God, the way that you handle this command really talks more about your relationship with God than it does the other person. If you respond to this correctly, I'm going to say, hey, you know who God is. You understand what he's done for you and where you need to go. And that's going to be very helpful. If you refuse to do it because the other person is doing something, not only does it speak to your relationship to your spouse, but it speaks to your relationship with God. If I could just give you some encouragement, turn with me to a psalm that's very familiar, but go to Psalm 23 and think about this with me. Psalm 23. It's one of these, one of these psalms that are so beautiful and so rich, and sometimes in the, you know, the beauty of the poetry or the familiarity because it's used so much that we really forget the power behind it. But think about the truth of what it's saying. And then we're going to apply it to living out our responsibilities no matter what. Look at uh, Psalm 23. It says this, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. 
He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Notice David's going through a pretty rough time, at least in this psalm. Even if I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death, that's a difficult place to be in. But the condition that he finds himself in and the circumstances that are surrounding him don't drive his actions because he knows who is ultimately leading him. It's God. And once he knows God, it doesn't really matter where he goes or what the opposition is coming at him. He knows he will succeed because God is in control. Do you believe that? It's really going to be tested in your marriage when you're called to live out your responsibility no matter what. But wives, let me help you here. If you have a hard time respecting your husband because he's done something that doesn't deserve respect, if you look at this and say, my ultimate leader is God, and he provides lavishly for me. So you know what? This situation right now might look kind of grim, but ultimately I know my God is on my side, and I will be okay. I, I fear no evil. See, it really takes the trepidation out of submission when I realize ultimately who's in control. It's not even my husband. It's, it's God who's leading me. But husbands, think about this the other way. You want to stop yourself from being this you know, dictator that no one likes or you're having a hard time leading your wife because she's pushing against you? Think about this. No matter how hard it gets, well, God's my shepherd and he's going to lead me and guide me. I'm not the ultimate means to anything. God is the one who's going to take me there. And if I understand my relationship to him, a sheep to a shepherd, I'm going to rely more on him and less on myself. Guys, the roles that we have are designed by our creator to make sure that marriage functions the way it should be. And if you want to have the smoothness of the one flesh relationship, which when it moves together glorifies God, it will be when both of you are depending on the creator. But it doesn't mean if your spouse isn't doing it that you can't do it individually. God will protect you. God will sustain you. And God will be glorified through it. So as we're taking the time to go to small groups, we've gone through this for four weeks Let's do a check, not just through these four weeks, not just in the coming you know, days, but the rest of our lives, making sure we understand what a godly marriage is and how we can most bring glory to him by having the love we give be the love that he's given to us. And God's going to get a lot of glory through that. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time. I thank you for this look at your word. Please help us, Father, to be pleasing to you, thinking about the love we receive from you. And we ask that you would do this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, guys. Thank you for that. Uh, we will see you next week, hopefully with no bunco tables on the stage and unbelievable, Ryan Holly. Incorrigible, I think is the word. Look it up. Tell me if that's correct. <laughs>